perhaps that won't reappear. I don't know where that came from, actually. But at any rate, if it does, perhaps we can deal with it yet again. As was already mentioned, how appreciative we can be that we each have the opportunity to be here this evening, the privilege, in fact, that is ours. For in fact, as we've been so richly and abundantly blessed this day in a number of physical ways, what a spiritual feast we've been able to enjoy this morning with our fellowship with God and with His Son, Christ Jesus. And now yet this afternoon, yet again, to open the blessed pages of the Word of God, to be enriched and edified by a study therein, and to perhaps be able to march forward more powerfully this week as a servant of the Almighty God. As we make ready for the consideration of the lesson tonight, you may well have noted, as the title even is before us now, what money cannot do. And at the close of the lesson this morning, even Brother Roger had made a prelude to the fact that that would be the subject tonight. And the text is taken from the 49th Psalm, and so it is to that chapter I'd invite your attention as we look at basically all 20 of the verses in a somewhat brief fashion this evening. Psalm 49, verses 1 through 20. The book of Psalms in all 150 of its majestic chapters sets forth some of the most remarkable things, for in fact all the books of the Bible are scintillating and powerful in one regard or another. In fact, in many dimensions, perhaps many of them in fact are. The book of Psalms in fact touches, it would seem, every aspect, every decision, every major consideration of life, the emotional circumstances surrounding it, great times of decision, information can be found that would be beneficial for us to fully incorporate and use in our daily walk with God. In fact, to bring the point more closely to tonight's lesson, even the subject of wealth and money is addressed throughout the course of these 150 chapters. And in fact, would it not be appropriate to even note that when our blessed Savior lived in the flesh and preached here upon earth, one of the most common subjects of his preaching was in fact wealth and money. As we remember the teaching of Jesus, the things that he set forth by virtue of his presentations, might we never forget that two of the most oft-occurring subjects in all of his presentations were these, money and hell. Might we perhaps note very briefly there's a critical element of association there. The proper use of funds, the proper stewardship of money, and so it is tonight what money cannot do. You and I live in a society in which it often seems as though we're encouraged to believe that money makes nearly anything possible. But in fact, the psalmist sets before us in this psalm tonight the fact that there are some things money not only has never been able to do, but will never be able to do. With that said, let's divide the chapter into various segments and look at all three segments into which we will divide it. First... Let's begin by considering the opening five verses of the 49th Psalm, and let us read them. Hear this, all ye people, give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil? when the iniquity at my heels shall compass me about. We hinted just briefly a few moments ago of the power that in fact the subject of money and wealth seems to possess. Note, if you would, in verses 1 and 2, the subjects now set before our mind are those which should not bypass any of us. 
Whether we think offhand that we need the instruction to shortly come before us or not, we would do well to humble ourselves and realize this is for all people, low and high, rich and poor, all inhabitants of the world, verse number 1. In fact, do we not understand that wealth and money seem to be a vital part of the thinking of so very many in all of us? At one time or another must wrestle with and deal with the very matters with which it relates. I'm somewhat reminded as we think about that, about the character of verse 3. Because the idea now is that the author says, these are words that involve wisdom. These are words that involve understanding. Sometimes when we're younger and we are anxious to undergo maturation and reach a time when we are somewhat more wise, we come to realize that some of the early thinking in our life was a bit on the side of foolishness. Here, the inspired writer David helps us see that it matters not whether we be young or old. Might we listen carefully to the words of the inspired writer and notice in verse 3, this is wisdom. This is wisdom. Did not Solomon, the very son of David, proclaim in Proverbs 4 verse 7, wisdom is the principal thing. It would be difficult to overstate the thrust of that verse, isn't it? Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Notice also in light of that, in Psalm 119, verse 130, The entrance of thy word giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. Each of us desire to have understanding. Each of us desire to be wise even with regard to our money. Money is not to be wasted. It is a blessing that God has made available and gives to each of us. And it should be our duty as a faithful servant to the God of heaven to employ that money properly, wisely, and to use it to accomplish the ends whereby God will be glorified by it. But in addition to those things, notice with me verse 4 if you would. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. It would appear that David, in many instances, set the thoughts of his mind actually to music. Now, not as though they were always employed in a service that would be a worship service. There are three hints in this chapter that that appears to have been the case. Namely, that the ideas were set to music. First of all, this reference in verse 4. But notice also verses 13 and 15. The closing word in each one of those two verses is the word selah. Though that word is not defined in any of the 150 psalms, it would appear that in fact it is a musical term that supposedly divides and sets forth the musical idea, perhaps much like a rest in the language of our music of today. You arrive at a certain shaped note and it's a rest note, and perhaps that was the same in the word selah, which again the Hebrew does not define rather directly for us. But with that noted, Verse 5 comes to our first major crescendo of the chapter. This information for each of us. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my heel shall compass me about? Many of us could testify very thoroughly and powerfully to the fact that the days of evil shall come our way. If we live long enough, we each shall experience it. Troubling times as your compass is about, and it may leave us in a state of wonderment, pondering exactly where is the end of this tunnel. Will it come to a 
safe and comforting end? Or shall we always find ourselves thrown about in the turmoil of difficulty and anguish and despair? Even David said, Why? Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil? David knew the days of evil had already come his way to some extent, and furthermore, that they would again. But might we notice, what was the origination, the source of these days of evil? When the iniquity of my heel shall compass me about. These days of evil, you see, were in part due to the matter of evil. Now, who was the source of this evil? Was it he himself or was it others? There is an extent to which that answer is immaterial. Sometimes each of us make very bad decisions. We live to regret them. If only we could turn back the clock and change the course of life that we chose to follow, things would be different. However, sometimes we suffer for the decisions that others make. Perhaps they have made a foolish decision. They have chosen a course in life that was not in their best interest. And because of our love for them or our association with them, we too must aid in the bearing of that burden. You see, the days of evil may touch us whether we ourselves or others whom we love have in fact made that decision. David says, why should I fear? Is it fear a powerful thing? Have you ever been in a position of being afraid, direly afraid of something? Maybe you can remember when the tornadoes rolled through here not many years ago now. If you were close enough to that, were you afraid? Perhaps when you have been in other places where perhaps your child you, was not in view, were you frightened and afraid, where is that child? What if I can't find him or her? Maybe we've all been there. David asked, why should I fear? We will learn before the psalm is over why he understood that thought. But would you note with me now how that David himself on more than one occasion realized in his better moment this. Note with me Psalm 56, 11. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. David himself, that son of Jesse, was one who in fact was stated to be a man after God's own heart and he said, In God I've put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. You and I are left to appreciate that Jesus himself left similar words to that in his own life. Fear not him which can kill the body and hath nothing more than he can do, but rather fear him which can kill both body and soul in hell, our Savior declared. Matthew 10 verse 28. In fact, not long before our Savior ascended back to glory in Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20, he said, I'll be with you always, even in the end of the world. In Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. The Hebrew writer, again speaking the very nature and power of God's faithfulness through Christ, uttered these very great words as well when he also said that you and I ought not be given to covetousness, which sounds a lot like a partial reference to money and wealth. Be not given to covetousness, for the Lord has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. When you and I appreciate that fact, our mind races to Romans 8.31 in which we read, If God be for us, who can be against us? It is a never-ending fact that David understood here that the thought of this matter, and it shall relate to money before we're finished, is such that the fear and evil that can often surround the pursuit of it is such that David understood that with God as his helper, things would in fact be all right. He would not need fear. That opening section has prepared us to, in fact, go on to the next section. 
The next section to which we shall look is verses 6 through 13. I'd invite your attention to as we read those verses and return to make some comments about them. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly. Yet their posterity approve their sayings. Selah. Beginning with verse number 6. As we return our attention to that verse, and especially the one that follows it for the present time, we note that David makes reference to the fact that there are those who place their trust in their wealth, which is the directly opposite place to put one's trust in the verse to which we just looked. He said, I'll not be afraid with my trust in God. But now in contrast, there are those, David said, that put their trust in their wealth. Isn't it interesting how in some ways the human family has changed virtually none? Though we live in a society and culture so far technologically advanced than it was 3,000 years ago, yet David wrestled with the same propensities and the same tendencies of the human frame that you and I deal with today. There were those back then though they may not have had as much as you and I have, who nonetheless put their trust in the size of what they owned. Verse number 6. Did you note with me the interesting way that the English as well as the Hebrew presents this? Verse 5 had ended with a question, and it made reference to iniquity. Verse number 6 picks up the idea, and thus we conclude and note that the language affirms it that the iniquity to which David referred in verse 5 is precisely due to the pursuits of those who place their trust in their wealth in verse 6. Note the word iniquity, that is not a good thing. In fact, it is a sinful thing because our God is a jealous God and trust not placed in Him is thus misplaced and hence we thus cause great hurtfulness and disappointment to the God who made us. Might it be noted that they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches. Have you carried on a conversation with anyone whose thought seems not to turn very far from what I have accomplished and what I have earned and what I have done? After a while, one gets a bit tired of language like that. We understand perhaps that at times language like that may well be appropriate as a person makes reference to some element, but to always refer to one's activities in that way seems to hint at a boastful disposition in which one has misplaced his trust, placing it rather in what he has and not in the one who allowed him to have it. The fairness of verses 6 and 7 ask us to notice amazingly the following. None of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. Question. Regardless the size of that bank account and the number of acres owned and the number of cars in the garage and the great deal of clothing that may fill a closet, 
Can any of that redeem either oneself or anyone else? We each know the answer to that question, having been schooled in the education of the Bible. But do we not need reminding of that truth? Even David, and might we remember that David was a very rich man, not so much so as his son, but he himself was king of Israel. And in fact, that book of 2 Samuel, to which we'll turn our attention for the Bible Bowl, will discuss the reign of King David, all that he was able to accomplish with God working through him, even all that he possessed in terms of money, he still came to realize, no one can be redeemed with what I have. No one. That word redeem means to purchase or buy back, to reclaim that which has been taken by another. Might we appreciate that that brother that you and I may well know, or even ourselves, that soul that's ours cannot be reclaimed with money. It's an interesting thought how often in the Bible that message reappears. I ask you to notice on this occasion the thought that the very last book in the Bible seems to readdress it. When you and I studied the Revelation some weeks ago now, we reached chapter 18 at one point, And we came to see the great judgment and doom that rested upon Rome and her evilness and her character of misplaced character with regard to God. In Revelation 18, verse 17, the inspired writer John saw this. In the great day of the wrath that had come, all her riches have come to naught. It was not able to secure one element of continuation in the thoroughgoing nature of Rome. She was crushed and she was defeated and never did she rise again. Isn't it interesting to see that David, no one can use money to redeem his soul. On that day of judgment, one of the questions we can rest assured that God will not ask is, how much money did you have? He may well ask how we used it, and he may open the books and make note of whether we stingily hoarded it to ourselves or used it to glorify him. But he won't allow us into heaven based on what amount we had. The poorest person who ever lived has the opportunity in a physical way to enter the glorious climbs of heaven, just as much so as the richest physically that has ever walked the planet. The glory of the redemption of verse 7 is so powerful with that opening word. One of the things we sometimes see in school is that one must be dangerous, or very cautious at least, of the words never and always. When there's a true-false question with one of those in it, usually a youngster learns to read carefully. Notice here, David has no problem using that word. How many, David, can be redeemed with money? None of them. Not even one. In Zechariah, or rather Zephaniah, one of those minor prophets of the Old Testament, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, remind us that even Judah thought that she could use money to aid her longevity so that God would look favorably upon her and not allow the Babylonians to conquer. Oh, how she was mistaken. For the prophet Zephaniah was sent by God and reminded them that your riches will avail you nothing. Rather, it is only trusted and placed trust in God. Notice also verse number 8 as the thought continues. For the redemption of their soul is precious, or to say that differently, life is costly. In fact, the American Standard renders it in that latter way. And finally, it ceaseth forever. That money, you see, will fail to accomplish the matter of redemption. It's just that simple. Doesn't that then cause us to ponder? 
do you and I not know of those who meander their way through life from cradle to grave and learn at an early age to think so highly of money? They work for it. They perhaps on occasion will advantage themselves by disadvantaging others solely for its sake. And yet in the final analysis, what good is it? True enough, we may put physical food in the body with it. True enough, we may in fact accomplish other things necessary like clothing ourselves, but this might be noted. That money gained in an ill fashion is not worth an eternity in hell. For money cannot be used to redeem the soul. The thought goes on, verse 9, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. Not see corruption. We remember in the sermon on Acts chapter 2, on that great day when Peter preached the first gospel sermon, he made reference to the fact that the soul of Christ was not left in corruption. Another reference, if you will, to what takes place after the time of death. Do you not... And I not see in this an Old Testament reference to the resurrection? It may be that they certainly do not, do not occur frequently in the Old Testament, but this is one of them. Money cannot be used to redeem one from hell, to redeem one from the nature of being apart from God. As we thus seek to use our money wisely, it's a good thing to have a job, isn't it? And to provide for the necessities of life. 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us, or rather 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us how important that is. But doesn't David tell us that to boast in those riches and to place our trust in them is a tragic, tragic mistake. Verse number 10, For he seeth that wise men die. Likewise the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. When the end of my way and yours has come, and our old body lies lifeless in the casket. What about all that money and possessions that you and I have accumulated? We cannot take it with us. As has often been noted, perhaps with a bit of humor in it, but it ever is true. How often have you and I seen a U-Haul behind a hearse? It simply is not observed, for it does no good. All those things, thus, that we've accumulated shall be left for another. Be it our children, be it by the execution of our will, it matters not. It's left to someone else. Will they use it wisely? At that point, we will no longer have any control over how they use it. We would trust that they would wisely employ whatever may be given. But notice, the wise, the fool, and the brutish person alike all will leave what they have to somebody else. What's that word brutish employ? What does it signify? That's a word that does occur more than once in the Old Testament. It has to do with a degree that relates to the character of not being unlike an animal in the sense that one lives, but he has a degree of stupidity. He hasn't risen to the level of honesty to use the talents and judgment that he ought to use. He lives in a simple fashion, not in light of the truth that's around him, and not in light of the good sense that God has given Hebrews 9.27 reminds all of us, does it not, that the time of death is a certainty. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. When you and I pass from the scenes of this life, we will be in a position of so many, of course, in biblical history. Job declared in Job 1.21, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord hath given, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
What an attitude that Job had. He was a rich man, having houses, possessions, great flocks, and yet he lost them all due to the operation of Satan in one day. In fact, even his health was taken from him. Even his wife encouraged him in light of the fact she could see no reason for what had occurred. Job cursed God and died, Job 2 verse 9. Job, however, was a wiser man than she. In fact, he affirmed that his trust was still in God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, Job thirteen fifteen. The thought before us then is this. Job knew that though the riches were gone, he couldn't blame God for it. It was such that he knew they couldn't redeem his soul, and he hadn't placed his trust in them. May you and I live as wisely as he in that regard. Two other passages to briefly consider. Solomon, again, the very son of David, mentioned much of this in the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes, and I'd encourage you to read that if you have opportunity this week, noting especially verses 14 and following. And finally, perhaps, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 7. Even the great inspired apostle said, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. That humbles us to realize that these possessions that we have are such that we are but mere stewards of them. God owns them. Every one of them he owns. You and I are just given opportunity to take care of them for a little while. May we do that wisely. In fact, as the chapter continues in verse 11, their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. They take great pride in naming things after themselves with the intent of its great longevity, that it'll long last after they are gone. Many instances that never occurs, does it? Absalom tried that at one occasion, didn't he? That son of David, he wanted to name matters after himself, and yet Absalom was the very one who, in fact, died in a rather unhumbling way. As he himself, his hair was caught in the tree and he ultimately hanged. Or uh, ultimately, right after that, remember Joab who took his life. All of that should well be noted. For verse number 12 says, Nevertheless, Man, being in honor, abideth not. You and I are not perpetual. Once that sentence of death came in the Garden of Eden due to the fact man no longer had access to the tree of life, we now understand that appointment of death is a certainty. But as we approach that with wisdom, unlike those who have placed their trust in wealth, we can approach that with a degree of brightness in full confidence of what lay ahead for those who are the children of God. Notice verse number 12, he is like the beasts that perish. That person who has placed all his trust in his money, what difference is there in some ways from his death and the death of an animal? They, each one, don't have much at all to look forward to. For what lay ahead? For the one, it's an eternal judgment, and due to the fact he's found wanting, he shall find himself in sore and dire regret. Of course, there is no immortal spirit in the animal. Neither has a great entertaining hope to look forward to. And as far as closing that section, verse 13, this their way is folly. That word folly has to do with foolishness, unwise choices, unwise approaches and perspectives in traveling through life. Yet their posterity approved their sayings. 
as sad as these thoughts have been, isn't it true that sometimes those who have made great wealth for themselves and placed their trust in it are such that men clamor to be like them. They acknowledge them. They compliment them. They, in fact, will even desire, that, as that verse says, to approve what they have done and strive to do it themselves. Such a thing is, again, very sad indeed. Because one of the great examples that we may point out is done other than the thought of what is seen perhaps nextly. As these verses have drawn us to this particular place, in Matthew 25, verse 46, we read about the thought that man is an eternal being. That is to say, the time of our death is not the end. That spirit has simply gone elsewhere to Hades to await the time of the Savior's second coming. On that occasion of His coming, we shall then be judged in accordance to that which the life has done, according to our works, Revelation 20, verse 15. These thoughts have prepared us for the last section in the chapter, verses 14 through 20. In light of these, I would ask that we again read that and draw our conclusion to the lesson this evening. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. For he shall receive me, Selah. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers, they shall never see light. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beasts that perish. Just as certainly as we have noted this statement earlier, it is even now more profoundly set before us. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Money was not able to prolong their life. Their money was not able to prevent their death. Those who have placed their trust in money come to the same end as you and I who have not done so, they still must die. And in this verse, there is nonetheless one of the most intriguing, one of the most scintillating passages anywhere in this chapter. Let us notice it again. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. When is the morning? All are laid in the grave, the upright and the wicked alike, but in the morning. The upright shall have the dominion. No doubt a reference to that glorious morning of resurrection when our Savior shall have returned and all will arise. The dead in Christ shall rise first, having the dominion over those who are not found right. The wonderful thought of that passage in 1 Thessalonians reminds us here, the Old Testament does prophesy of the resurrection and all the wonder that would surround it. We still, of course, await the glory of that day. But as that verse rolls onward, their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. All the beauty that surrounded the riches will have been tarnished and gone. It is no wonder that in verse 15 we find that little word, but. A contrast, an opposite statement of truth drawn by comparison to what was before it. God will redeem my soul. If money is not able to do it, what will redeem the soul? What is able to? God is, God will, God can, and he notes in that verse, from the power of the grave. 
we understand that the grave is not the perpetual home of that which is placed therein. That body is going to come forth someday. And when Jesus returns and it comes forth to the glory of the great mourning that is then the case, it can, if it's prepared and upright, be prepared for an eternity of gladness, honor and glory with the very Savior who allowed by His blood to redeem the power of that soul. That's a very powerful thought, isn't it? And it's one that encourages us to notice that in verse 16, in light of this fact, be not thou afraid when one is made rich. Though others may persecute, though they may use riches to their advantage over you and me, sometimes making things difficult and hard, we ought not let that drive us to despair in such a way that we become openly practicing of sin we should understand, be not afraid when one is made rich. And when the glory of his house is increased, why, David? Because they cannot take it with them. When that day of judgment comes, they, as well as we, will stand there and give an accounting of the life that we have lived. Oh, may we have full recourse to the blood of the Christ, having used that powerfully, faithfully, and honestly to ensure the redemption of our soul. As David made these statements, he races to the conclusion of this particular chapter in verses 18 through 20. Might we notice that through all of this, isn't it a wonderful thought that death is not the final thing? If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. Those were the words of an inspired man. Paul made that affirmation, did he not? If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, if our trust in religion, our hope in that can take us no further than the grave, we're pitiful. We're of all men to be most pitied. That text is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. We understand that the gospel message carries all who will follow and obey it beyond the grave. For just like Martha and Mary on the occasion when Jesus raised their brother Lazarus, oh, how happy and excited they were. A beautiful conversation ensued in which Martha told Jesus, If thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. However, as that conversation went on, she even admitted, Even now, whatsoever thou ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus comforted her by saying, Thy brother shall rise again. Death was not the final thing standing there before her for her brother. Martha responded by saying, I know that at the resurrection of the last day he shall rise again, John 11. At that point, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. Do you not believe that? Do you and I live in such a way we have put our trust in that? I am the resurrection and the life. If we believe on the Lord, though we're dead, though we may have passed from the scenes of this life physically, we shall live again. Oh, what hope that gives each of us. Perhaps finally, can we not see that verses 18 through 20 then lead us to note this. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. That almost brings a tear to our eye, doesn't it? Those who have lived for so much on earth, having accumulated so much money and possessions, he says in verse 19, he will depart and die and go to the generation of his fathers, but they shall never see light. Sounds to me like a description of a place of outer darkness, 
a place in which for those who are having been cast aside out of the Father's kingdom and away from all that is near and dear to Him. Might we remark very briefly at this point of a passage in the New Testament that likely we've each thought of already. In Luke the 16th chapter beginning in verse 19, our Savior uttered a very famous passage. On the one hand, there was a rich man who fared sumptuously every day. His table was full, his clothing was fine. There was, on the other hand, a beggar named Lazarus, seemingly had nothing. It was even his desire to have the crumbs that fell from the table of the rich man. And it was even said that dogs were able to become and to lick his sores. His case was so sad. In this life, the rich man had so much and Lazarus had so little. Where had the trust apparently been placed? We know that they both died. In the aftermath after that, though, what do we next read? That one was found in Abraham's bosom. Lazarus opened his eyes, having been carried there by the angels, but on the other hand, the rich man was in torment, a miserable place. Had his money redeemed his soul? Had his case been such that the money was able to purchase for him any ease at all in that place called Tartarus? Not in the slightest. He even pleaded that the tip of the finger of the one could be broad and just cool his tongue, and it was not to be so. Notice that he prayed and desired so greatly that his brothers not come to that place. For the first time in that man's life, no doubt he had become evangelistic. Send Lazarus to tell my brothers not to come here. Don't trust in your riches. Don't trust in your possessions. Use them wisely to the glory of God. Put trust in Him. And in so doing, you can live in an appropriate way with, and feel His blessings. These things have brought us to the closing verse of the chapter. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beast that perish. God has made us honorable beings. We are not like animals. We are not animals. He has made us in His image and in His likeness. Genesis 1 and Genesis 5. And in that sense, we carry all the character that goes along with being made in God's image and all the glory that associates with it. But notice, though you and I are made in honor, if we choose not to understand the truths of Psalm 49, if we nonetheless trust in these riches and money and wealth that God has made, notice he says we're just like an animal that perishes. We have no more hope than the animal does. We have no more expectation to longingly look forward to than the animal. May we be wise. The closing verse in the book of Hosea perhaps also begs the question, Who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the just shall walk in them, but the transgressor shall fall therein. On which side of that do you and I find ourselves tonight? Are we on the side of wisdom in which we understand what money cannot do? Or have we become so tempted to think that money is the answer to the greatest of life's problems? We shall be sorely disappointed if that's what we think. Money cannot answer those greatest questions. Money is a tool to be used wisely. May we use it in that fashion. Tonight are you a member of the blood-bought body of Christ? Have you given your life over in humble submission to the character of His commandments? Have you been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb? Has the message of the gospel overwhelmed your life to the point of knowing the eternity that lies beyond for those that are prepared? 
if that gleam has brightened your eye in days past, but you have allowed the glory to slip from you, you become overwhelmed with money and wealth and other things that have distracted you from the central truth of the life of Jesus. We would be happy to pray on your behalf tonight that that could be forgiven and taken away and a rededication of your life could take place. If either of these things would be the need of your life and heart tonight, Brother Harold has chosen a song of encouragement. If we could help you, would you not let it be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?